Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome. I'm Melissa Studdard, and along with Donna Bear Stein, I'm your host for tonight's episode of Teferit Talk, a blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature, where we publish writings and engage in dialogue to promote peace in the individual and in the world. We're thrilled that you're with us right now, and we would love for you to also join our global online community at www.teferitjournal.com. There, in addition to interacting with other members, reading their writings, and posting your own, you can subscribe to the journal and enjoy beautiful, spiritually and intellectually compelling poetry, prose, and art. This evening's guest is Richard Bouse, the masterful and award-winning author of numerous novels and short story collections, as well as a volume of poetry and prose. Bouse's stories have appeared in Harper's, The Atlantic Monthly, Gentleman's Quarterly, and many other magazines and anthologies, and he is the winner of the prestigious Rhea Award for the short story. His most recent collection, Something is Out There, was a finalist for the 2011 LA Times Book Award. As well, Bausch is the recipient of numerous grants and fellowships, including an MEA, a Guggenheim, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters Award in Literature. Bausch is also Chancellor of the Fellowship of Southern Writers, the editor of the Norton Anthology of Short Fiction and a professor at Chapman University. The Pulitzer Prize winning author Robert Olin Butler has stated, no writer has a finer insight into the delicate nuances of the human heart than Richard Bash, and we agree. Hello, Donna. Hello, Richard. Hello. It's really an honor to have you here, Richard. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Mm, It absolutely is. I'm going to go ahead and start with a question, and then, Donna, I'll bring you in for some questions in a little while, too. Um, Richard, I was thinking about your characters. They're so real and complex that it's like a reader can almost forget that they're made of, like, alphabet and imagination instead of flesh and blood. And it occurs to me that this can be attributed to much more than what happens in actual composition. So I would love to know what advice you might have for writers about learning and listening to people in a way that they are able to create authentic, fleshy characters. Does that make sense? Um, Yeah, although I'm I'm really not... Uh, the kind of writer that that listens in much. I mean, um, oh really? Yeah, no, I've known people who do, of course, but uh, it never. Uh, I've always felt more comfortable um, lying. If, if you know, I mean, I know, when people people say to me, "What do you teach?" I say, "I teach lying," and laugh, um, <laughs> you know, and I say, "Well, you know, I mean." Um, I used to give a little lecture at school sometimes, and I would begin wanting to keep the teacher's attention as well as the students. So I would say, 
Um, I would start by saying Jesus Christ was one of the greatest liars who ever lived. And, of course, then there's an immediate uh, stampede back into the room with teachers who were headed out to get a cigarette. But, of course, <laughs> then I would go on to say there was no good Samaritan. That's that's a made-up story. The same thing with the Ten Talents, with all of those parables. They're all made-up stories. And whatever else he was and whatever you believe he was, we know that he must have been an absolutely spellbinding storyteller. Yeah. So, you know, so that, that um, but, I, you know, I, a lot of the times it surprises me. In fact, I don't really trust it if it doesn't surprise me. I think that when it's going really well and you're writing um, out of yourself, you're not really so much there as just attending to what's going on, that, that anyone doing it, it doesn't just have to be me, anybody doing it, um, that you have a com- all of the compassion and the forbearance of an angel and, and, and all that, all the intelligence. Um, and then when you stop, then you're just as confused as everyone else. You know, you go on life and you're in the confusion we all live in. But, um, but there's something that happens. I mean, I don't think it's any accident that that people believed and, and practiced it like a religion. In, in um, I mean, religiously they believed that, that there was a muse that spoke through a writer. Mm. Um, as the experience always is, as if somebody started whispering in your ear, you know, somebody that knows a lot more than you and is a heck of a lot more gentle. And and but, Richard, what this is Donna, when you when you were first starting, did you trust that inner muse as much as you do today? Oh no! When I first started, I thought I was going to be Kafka. The first one of the first stories I wrote was a. Uh, uh, about a virgin lying in a bed with snakes around it. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Um, so you, so you, you, you were trying to do something that was coming from outside of you that you were trying to imitate, maybe, rather than yeah, listening I, to what was being said inside you, coming through yeah, you. Yeah, right. And in fact, I encourage imitation of other writers. I mean, I tell my students... Um, you know, I make them inter- uh, do that because, you know, that's that's how you learn. I mean, those if you go through an art gallery, you see the painters setting up easels to actually copy the masters. They're learning how to paint. Mm-hmm. And, you know, imitation is, I mean, I did it by accident. You know, I was dating a young woman and I knew liked books. And so I was trying to impress her by sounding like whoever I was reading. Mm-hmm. And you know, and of course she was uh, smart and knew right away. At one point, she said, "You've been reading a lot of Whitman." Mm-hmm. I felt caught out. I, I felt like a thief. <laughs> but it's one of the luckiest things I ever did because I was teaching myself how to do it. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I heard one well, of the choices. Were obvious. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I didn't hear you. What? I heard one said Joyce Carol. Oh, go ahead, Melissa. No, please go ahead, Don. I heard one said Joyce Carol Oates copied um, verbatim stories um, by Hemingway and um, 
Kafka and others when she was first starting, just to see, get the feel of writing out those stories, imitating them. Yep. I was once in a car with Joyce. She's a dear friend. And um, I was once in a car with her, and she said, uh, how's your work coming? And I said, um, pretty good. I'm getting eight-hour days on it now. And she said, oh, only eight hours. And then she laughed and said, it's a joke, it's a joke, before I could really lose it, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, she's an empire. And um, the thing about it that's amazing to me is how much texture, and I mean, it reads as if somebody spent 20 years on it. She's mm-hmm. just a genius. She's one of the great mm-hmm. ones. Mm-hmm. There I have a friend so who was... Huh? Oh, I was just going to say, I have a friend who was good friends with her in college, and he said that she used to write a novel and then turn the paper over and write another novel on the other side, <laughs> just to practice. <laughs> uh, I'll remind her of that the next time I see her. <laughs> <laughs> you should, you should. That's amazing. Well, Donna, did you have a question that you wanted to ask? Um, well, when when I took a writing class with you, Richard, many years ago, um, I remember you sending an email saying, write, write, write. And I also remember that um, you were not a teacher who, who said, figure out your plot in advance. And I was eager to hear a little bit more about that from you, that you know, I, I, I'm now teaching some beginning writing classes, and I use your story, The Man Who Knew Bell Star. Um, and I'm wondering, did you just plop McRae down in his Dodge Charger in Texas and see what happened? You, you did not know the ending. You don't really know the ending in advance. You just well, that story play out the dance. Pardon? Yeah. Well, that story particularly, I... Uh... I um, I started to write it. Uh, it came from um, a passage in a wonderful movie called Five Easy Pieces. Mm-hmm. In it, there um, Jack Nicholson and and Karen Black are traveling, and uh, they're driving, and they pick up these hitchhikers. And there's a woman who is extremely uh, negative, complaining. And it, it's a comic thing, you know. You see Nicholson's frustrated look on his face and everything. But I got to thinking, what if somebody got picked up and there really was something serious that they had to tell? And um, so I started with that. And there's a place in the story where the hitchhiker says, he says, where are you headed? And she sticks her thumb out and points it down and says, down. And when I wrote it, I thought telling him that she was dying. And I had no idea what she had in her bag. Mm-hmm. And when I the pistol and shot the guy, I put the story aside. And I said, what is this? You know, watching too much TV or something is ridiculous. <laughs> and I went away from it. I was working on, I had a bad cold. And I was writing in bed, and I just started writing another story, working on another story. And um, then about a month later, maybe as much two months later, I was in a, a bar with a student after a class. And I was saying, 
Um, you know, you got to follow your subconscious, man. Whatever occurs to you, you got to go with it, follow it. See where it's leading. And as I was speaking, this little voice in my head said, why don't you go home, dummy, and follow your own advice. <laughs> and um, so I went home and spent that night, uh, I wrote the rest of the story overnight. And um, But I had no idea when I started it that that was where it was going. Yeah. Is that typical for how you write your stories, that you um, just sort of let the story develop on its own? Yeah. I, if it doesn't surprise me, I'm kind of leery of it. And, and it's mm-hmm. boring to me. It's not surprising. You know? It's hard mm-hmm. for me to work on it. I've already figured it all out. Uh, it's like writing you know, a homework, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I think I remember reading in another interview with you that you try not to, or actually it's not that you try not to, you just simply don't really worry about theme when you're writing. You um, just sort of let the creativity take over. Um, and I was wondering, because some of your stories just really have such clear and amazing themes, like I love the story Valor, um, and it was so blown away by the ending of that and how, um, you know, they're all kind of obsessed with this idea of heroism, but then we see that these isolated acts of heroism or cowardice aren't really what builds our lives. It's those day-to-day interactions, you know, because when he goes home, it's the same. Everything's the same. And, um, you know, I'm just wondering, did you not have, and I know there are a lot of other really like apparent themes in that story. Did you not have any of that in mind when you were writing it? You just sort of let the characters do what they would? And... Uh, I was just visiting misery on that poor guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the thing that you do is um, um, I, John Irving put it best a long time ago. I, I, I was a I was a student of his in the best way you could be a student in the sense that he said, go right. He let me alone. Um, but um, um, he said, I think of characters and then visit trouble upon them and see how they behave. And I think that's a pretty good way to put it, although I'm always thinking in terms of they don't interest me if there's no trouble. Mm. And uh, I mean, and it's, there's a whole school of, of um, I won't say critical thought, but people who do occasionally write re- reviews will, you know, have these two these two things that are so mistaken. One is that somehow, um, you know, it, it, the story is depressing as it's about trouble. It's, it's like, mm. you know, you're going to write a with no trouble, like saying we're going to play football with no tackling. Um, I mean, it's trouble. It's about trouble. It's not mm-hmm. about the things that trouble us. And, you know, the thing that separates the so-called trivial uh, entertainments, I don't think any of them are trivial, by the way, but I'm saying that mm-hmm. people call the genre and all the rest. I think they're all honorable and good and and uh, to be celebrated. And I think that, um, you know, the thing that separates them is really this emphasis that the trouble is something 
with a lot of so-called genre fiction, the trouble is something that can be resolved with some action or other. Whereas an uh, awful lot of, of um, most so-called literary fiction is about those troubles for which there isn't any action. There's nothing you can do. You just got to find a way to live through it, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Why well, uses mm-hmm. the same grandmother just died? Who does he shoot? You know, there's nothing you can do about a thing like that. You just got to live with it. Mm, but, that's an um, amazing distinction. <laughs> But I don't think about it. When I'm writing, I'm just trying to be clear. And um, that's what you want to try to hope to get your students to understand. If they can just trust that if they can be as clear as a child would be, um, describing what they're seeing with the direct gaze of a child, that an awful lot of good stuff's going to come out. It just has to. It's the way we're built. It's, what, it's how we've done everything we've ever done. Look at those caves at Lascaux. There was no art theory then, but they're great paintings. They're astounding mm-hmm. pieces of art. And now they say they may have been done by women. Did you read that I, recently? I wouldn't, yes, and I love that idea. I hope they were. Yeah, it was in the news recently. Fascinating. Um, when, when, you, when you're in the dream of, of the writing but when you're writing about something, say, the Civil War or, or the Canary Islands or something that you don't have direct experience of, do you break to do some research or do you, what, how do you do that? Oh, I do the, the reading and the research. When I wrote Hello to the Cannibals, I had a whole lot of research I had to do. One of the lucky things about this novel was about Mary Kingsley, who was a real person, uh, a real um an English woman who ended up being the only European still, I think, to this day to climb the east face of Mount Cameron. Um, And she left a card, just like she was in some Victorian dining room and went on back down. And the six men who traveled with her had gotten drunk on the rum they had to keep warm. And she was very exercised with them. But uh, And she was an amazing... uh, person and uh, and um, so I got into her and the lucky thing about it was that um, all the people that knew her none of them understood her um, she was a complete mystery to everyone and her journals and letters only refer to places she's been like I knew that she had liked Paris she spent two weeks there, and I got to make up that whole two weeks because mm-hmm. there's nothing else, just that she was in Paris at this time and liked it. Mm-hmm. So for a natural-born liar like me, that was perfect for me to write a novel. Mm-hmm. But I did have to read. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, books about what kinds of monetary things they used in the 19th century in England, about Victorian England, and having just read... Um, Dickens in entirety after you know, I'd read the masterpiece so I decided I was going to go through him when I when I was on the Lila Wallace thing where it was three years and I just went through Dickens like a blight mm-hmm. and loved it and mm-hmm. uh, still love it but I learned uh, a great deal about Victorian life then you know Dickens was so good at the level of the line I mean, at every level, of course, but at the level of the line, he's so much fun. I mean, he mm-hmm. says things you never forget. 
You know, he was he he had a very um, well trimmed beard, and he was quite bald, which gave him the appearance of someone whose hair had been arrested in the act of falling off his head. (laughs) (laughs) You can't forget that, you know. That reminds me of something, and I'm trying to get the exact words, but actually in your novel, Peace, um, the horse was in the, oh, how was it phrased? It just really caught me, the manner of, the the attitude of flight. I loved that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, the horse is in the river. (laughs) And the attitude of flight. I love that. Well, um... I know you've got a new book coming out in August, and um, I would love to hear a passage from that. And also, if you want to tell us a little bit about that, I'm sure a lot of your readers and fans are just kind of chomping at the bit for that. It's a a novel called Before, During, After. And before is 9-11. and after, during is a rape that takes place on a beach in Jamaica because all the planes are um, down. And um, my young uh, protagonist, whose name is Natasha, um, after Natasha in Tolstoy's great novel, um, she's a watercolorist. And she's about to be married in her husband is in New York and so for a terrible day she believes he must be dead because he, she can't get through to him and he was talking about going to the towers for breakfast and uh, even though intellectually she knows that what happened happened before the towers were open for normal tourists she still has this picture of him on the street and debris falling on him and everything it's because she can't get through and um, she has too much to drink as everyone on the island has too much to drink, especially the Americans. And um, a seemingly harmless man makes a pass at her and it's just because she feels sorry for him, lets him kiss her once, but then says, I, I don't want any more of this. Please leave me alone. And she goes down the beach and falls asleep. And uh, he's passed out. She can't even see him where she is, but she comes out of it and he's on her and it happens. And um, so after in the novel is her attempt to do what seven out of ten victims of that crime do, which is just to go on and not report it and and um, try to live on, live past it, through it. And um, so it's a love story. He's, he's um, He loves her. They're quite passionate about each other, and something's different. And he he doesn't know how to figure it out. And he begins to think maybe she had an affair in Jamaica. And um, so toward the end, this is toward the end, after it has come out finally, where she's he has broken down the bathroom door because he wants to tell her, I don't care if you had an affair. We're married. I love you. I don't care. And... Um, she has screamed it at him. It was rape. I was raped. Get away from me. And um, so um, she's alone in the house, and uh, she um, 
thinking that if this was a movie, uh, the man who raped her would come back and, you know, he'd leap out at her and she'd kill him and all of that. But in the story she's living, the hours of the rest of the night just go on. And um, so it starts there. And she starts to think about the other victims of this crime. And that's where it starts. So it goes like this. And, you know, I, when people say it goes like this, it's like, so here's an approximation of it. This is exactly it. This is it. <laughs> it As it exactly is in print. God, she said aloud, no. And then she repeated it, no. She thought of the 60 to 70% who went on with their lives. She imagined them never speaking of it, and evidently nobody noticing anything. It must be that in one way or another they found the strength to make a kind of truce with it. Somehow they succeeded in concealing it, and they smiled and laughed and went with friends and made love, and they had no nightmares about it, and nobody was the wiser, or else they did have the nightmares and lived secretive, haunted lives, enduring by some means the anxiety and the scarred sense of themselves, the fear of every change, listening always in the dark, carrying the feeling of trespass and violation, but showing the world only the polite, desperate lifting of a hand to wave, like that poor doomed woman in the ruin of the South Tower. She worked to put the thought away, afraid that simply by thinking it, she was depriving the dead person of her dignity. And then she thought of the men who committed these crimes and went on with their own lives and did it over and over again. And yet too many people, men and women both, considered the thing itself a form of sexual excess or even awfully, in some mysteriously habituated way, an unacceptable breach of propriety. The whole culture smacked of it, smelled of it. She sat on the bed crying now for all those whom she would never know, as if they were all one species together, a type of creature, crouched in the failure of light all around them, estranged from where they lived, crushed by expectations and by assumptions. Wow, so powerful. Very. I know. Um, after. Hmm? It's called Before, During, After. And Before, During, After. August. It's coming out okay, in August. Right, right. Was that, and then I know the, you've got four daughters, was that difficult for you to imagine and write? Well, everything is always difficult. Um, the whole process for me is extremely difficult. and um, But this one was particularly hard because of the fact that uh, not only my daughters, but all the women I know. Um, and, um, you know, just the failure of light all around us that has to do with it. I mean, we're not that far ahead of the damn Taliban when it comes to women in this country. And um, it's just, uh, you know, you'd think some advancements would have been made by now on this post-feminist paradise, but we don't have it. And it's, um, you know, women still only make 77% like, what is it, 77 cents on the dollar? Mm-hmm. There are still mm-hmm. all these 
impediments to uh, advancement and all the rest of it and all the assumptions and um, you know assumptions I myself growing up and going out in the world have been guilty of mm-hmm. so you know um, when we were talking earlier before the interview I know you had some concerns about writing you know about this kind of situation and about women but um I just want to say thank you. <laughs> I really appreciate that there are men who are as concerned as you are with these issues. And I feel like, you know, at Tiferet, what we're concerned with, Donna, correct, Donna, established everything is, um, you know, peace in the individual and in the world. And I feel like the way you explore these characters and um, male and female, the way you create empathy, not only and yourself, the angel that you were talking about earlier, but, you know, you invite the reader into that empathy, and it it can only make things better. Don't you think, Donna? Yeah, and I also think that that confronting violence and um, acknowledging it is a real important task in today's world. And and I actually, Mm -hmm. that was something that I was thinking about, rereading peace and um and some um some other interviews that you had done and and you you said in an interview earlier this year that um in the most recent story collection something is out there you noted that the this interest in forms of menace and crimes was something you hadn't really explored that much and another interview said that at some point with the man who knew bell star you had felt uncomfortable about it and maybe it was the discomfort at finding that it was a gun in that brown paper bag and and i'm just i'm 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 very curious about this bec- or or drawn to this because um to me writing about those violent those acts of violence like what happened in Santa Barbara and so many others that it helps how do you feel like it helps um move the world forward i guess uh well uh, you know the way i the way I really feel about the whole thing with uh with fiction and what we're I don't believe there could be anything more important than doing what we're doing yeah um I think it's literally the thing that can save us because it is the one thing that we that we that distinguishes us as a species and um and it just seems to me that there is no evidence of the love of art making anybody less violent or less terrible. They were listening to Mozart while they were putting people to death in Germany. And it's a terribly mm. depressing thought, but it's, you know, and Auden, like Auden really? said, poetry, nothing happened, you know. But I think that if, if somebody's reading a book, um, at least for that period of time that they're reading the book, their willingness to think in in monoliths is slightly less, if that mm-hmm. makes any sense. Mm-hmm. That um, if we if we can only find some way to engender it in in such a way that that everybody gets it, you know, it's mm-hmm. treasure, and it's what. William Carlos Williams said, you know, yes, um, 
poetry is is you know not um, how does he put it poetry won't save your life but many people have died for lack of what is found there yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for both the so, writer and the reader yes yeah and how do you how do you negotiate any of it um, without learning something I mean it just seems to me that if if we could just concentrate on that somehow but you know we all want to make it and the paradox of it is you can't the first time you think of managing better human beings you're a despot before you ever pick up the first pencil Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. something corrupt about that so I mean it's Mm -hmm. it's very complicated and strange and I don't know what the answer is I just know that what I'm I feel that what I'm doing is valuable in and of itself, and so that gives me the the willingness to keep doing it. I mean, it's really, when you think about it, a very low-pressure job because you don't have to think too much. That's hard to agree with, reading your book. <laughs> you know, Richard, along these same lines, um, I was really struck by something I read in another interview with you, and um, it was the story by your friend Roland Flint and the Toddler in the Road. Do you know what I'm referring to? Yeah, it's called Stubborn. Mm-hmm. That's what and I'm proud of my life. It, it, pardon me? That's one of the proudest things in my life. I would love when, you know, when he gave me the poem, he said, mm-hmm. I, I should have said, I wondered who I'd give this first copy to and should have known that it would go to the boss who made me write it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, for me, um, this really relates to what we were just talking about because I personally wasted years and years not writing because I was kind of afraid that it was indulgent and it really took me a long time to get over that and just write and I feel like if I would have read this story about Rolling Flint I would have been writing the whole time I would I mean when you talk about how if you have the talent you're morally obligated to do it I would love for you to share that whole story with our listeners if you don't mind I mean you know what happened and the way you advised him well, it was, you know, it was very painful for him. And, and, you know, that event was the dividing line of his life. And he was a great mm. poet. but And he wrote some of the most beautiful poems about, um, you know, about that. But in this particular instance, you know, he was on his way home and he was thinking about it. He had just taught a makeup class. And... Um, he stopped to buy some flowers for his wife. Her birthday was coming up. And um, he saw this little toddler walking up down in the road. And he stopped the car and he went and tried to find out where he was, you know, going. And and uh, the parents came running out. The child had gotten out in the rain. They'd gone through the cat's door or something. And... Um, the father was upset, of course, and Roland 
said to him, I think he's very scared now. And, and then he had to, he found himself saying it. I, I have to tell you, I lost my son this way. Mm-hmm. And crying, telling it to the man. And then he called me, wrote, came home and wrote it in a journal. And then he called me crying and said, you know, and told me what happened. And, you know, and he said, to think that I'd trade it for poetry. To think that I would use poetry to talk about it. And I just commiserated with him a little. And we hung up. You know, I said, that's tough. You know, I'm so sorry that happened. And and um, and then I got to thinking about it and I called him back. And I said, look, you're morally obligated to write that poem. There are people who don't have the words to whom this very thing has happened. Mm-hmm. And um, the fact that you have the words means that you're supposed to do that. That's what you're. That's what you're put here for. And um, so he wrote stubborn. He went went right to the table and wrote it. And uh, you know, and that's when I realized. And I've been saying it ever since. I mean, that it's not writing isn't an indulgence. It's an obligation if you have any gift for it at all. And um, and it's in the Bible. I mean, no matter how conservative anybody is, there's no way they're going to convince anybody of anything, uh, you know, against writing as a anything but something you're obligated to do. It's right there. That's why we have the word talent. The mm-hmm. the four sons are each given ten talents, and one of them squanders his, and another one hoards his, and the third one uses it. And that's the one who's blessed. So, you know. Never has been an indulgence, and there's something about this culture, you know. Oh, you want to be a writer? That must mean you're presumptuous and you're a snob, and you, you know you have that. And and it's uh, you know, it's like Jim Dickey used to say, you know, to grow up in mercantile America, being a poet, what could be more unlikely than that? <laughs> but you know, he did a pretty fair, damn good job of it. You know, he was a great poet. Speak. You said James Dickey, correct? Hmm. You said James Dickey. Yeah. Yes. Um, and I was. Um, and actually, just the Bible story you mentioned prompts one other question that I wanted to ask you too about um, what kind of religious or spiritual upbringing you had and. I saw he suggested the title of your first novel, Real Presence, correct? Yeah, and I didn't like it. You didn't thought, like it? Do you like it I, now? Well, I love it. I couldn't think of that book under any other title. I just didn't know enough at the time to know how good it was as a suggested title. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, he was very, very kindly to me, and I'm lucky. I'm, I'm very good friends with his daughter, Bronwyn, who's a very gifted young writer and working on a, a book right now, a nonfiction book. And I get to harass her on you know, on the telephone saying, Get to work, you know. And you can't get into this. You know, she she's so gifted that, you know, like a lot of people who really are have the, this great gift are just riven with doubt. And um the way all of us are. I mean when I sent before, during, and after. Before, during, after out. Um, my editor was, my publisher was 
out of the country. And um, my agent had just started reading another client's book. And, you know, anyway, two weeks went by, and I was walking around in the house going, and I wasn't being facetious, going, uh, it's it's crap. They're just looking, trying to find some kindly way to tell me to go away. And, you know, it took my wife, Lisa, saying, come on, you know that's not true. I'm saying, I don't know that's not true. That's the thing about this. And that is the thing about this, you know. It's amazing. <laughs> After all the wonderful things you've written, that you would still feel that. Yeah, well, it's just, you know, it's the territory. I, mm-hmm. When students tell me, you know, how doubtful they are, I say, well, I'll get used to it because it ain't ever going away. Might as well make friends with it now. <laughs> make friends with it. I like that. Uh, old, I was uh, going to ask you. Oh, go ahead. No, no. What? Uh, I was just going to ask you as well. Um, for me, you just really defy that stereotype of like the lone, angry writer who's hiding in the cabin with a bottle of whiskey and pen foil over the sheets and a shotgun and, you know, that image that we have. And um, I've seen a lot about the friendships that you've made through writing and you've very affectionately mentioned several people tonight. And I just wanted to ask you, it's very personal, but, um, you know, I just wanted to ask what has it meant to you to, to be a writer to be part of the writing community and to spend your time writing. It just to me you're such a good example of it as a joyous thing. And not necessarily so solitary. No, it's not. I mean it's one of the most gregarious things in the world because what you're really trying to do is you want to talk to everybody. Say, hey, mm-hmm. this is for all of you. No? Uh, mm-hmm. I got something for all of you. It's <laughs> um, <laughs> like you know, it's like my uh, my daughter Lila. We were at this wedding, and everybody was standing up. And she was two. Everybody was standing up to talk about the young couple and how wishing them luck and all that stuff. And Lila stood up and said, "Okay, my turn." At two. <laughs> so there it is, you know. But I mean, there isn't anything more. Uh, I mean, I can't even tell you how. I was blessed. I have been. I knew Eudora. I, I knew the great George Garrett. George and I traveled together for for a dozen years. And when George died, I knew how Stan Laurel felt when uh, Ollie died because uh, we had this thing we called the Money Losing Authors Tour, and we would go out and uh, you know when somebody would offer a reading or something, we both would do this and say, well, you know. I'd say, I could bring George Garrett, I'll split the honorarium. And with me, it was always, when I'd say that, they would go, you, you can get George Garrett? And I'd say, yeah. And it's, oh, man, they jump. And with George, you know, he'd have to do some explaining. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, when they were calling, they wanted George Garrett, who was just, you know, one of a kind. Mm. And um, so, but I've been... So lucky. And I have a twin brother who's an amazing writer. He wrote the novel that they made Bruce Almighty out of, and it's a hell of a lot better than that novel. I mean, that movie. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. He's wow. got a novel coming out this fall. Mm-hmm. Two of us um, doing it for a long time. Do you want to tell us about it? 
Yeah, it's called, um, the novel's called Far as the Eye Can See. And uh, it's a Western. And there's already movie interest. And um, and it's, you know, he's an amazing writer. I mean, he's, uh, um, he started the whole thing. When we were in eighth grade, he wrote a Civil War novel. Wow. And everybody in the house was, you know, my sister was typing pages up and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, my parents were reading it, and, and I was playing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> Do you share your um, work with each other before it's sent out? Nope. Um, I don't want him to see it until it's in print because mm-hmm. I want him to see the best that I have. I don't want him, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's the same way, so we don't really show each other. Well, I don't show any work until I'm showing my publisher the work. Mm-hmm. I'm reading, reading Lisa's novel. My wife, Lisa Cupolo, who's just finished her first novel, and I'm reading that now. It's a wonderful novel called To Elizabeth. It's about, um, it's about a woman named Elizabeth who's returning to Canada, to Niagara Falls, to see the daughter she ran away uh, after, after she was born, who's been raised by someone else. And uh, at the same time that Queen Elizabeth is coming for her Jubilee visit in 2002, that's why it's called Two Elizabeths, because the woman's name is Elizabeth. And the woman in charge of the Queen's visit is the girl's foster mom. It's just, it's a terrific book. And I get a great see title. Isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And you yeah. mentioned that you'll be in New York June 10th at Symphony Space. Is that correct? Yeah, they're reading. Uh, they read a. They do a thing where they read a, a story by the years, the previous year's Ray Award winner. Mhm. I'll be. I'll be coming in. Great. I will do my best to get there. Great. Want to have lunch, Donna? Sure, it sounds good to me. That'd be terrific, mm-hmm. Richard. <laughs> so long time, I think. I know, several decades. And I, be that I do remember that email saying, right, right, right. That's what it said. So you're a fine blend of awesome writer and awesome teacher as well. So that's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's very true of you to say. Mm-hmm. Well, um, is there anything else going on that you would like to tell the listeners about? Any other events or readings or publications? Um, Well, I've got a story coming out in VQR called Veterans Night um, about two uh, veterans who get into trouble in in a bar and their friend who's a Vietnam vet it's very, very short, but I'm proud of it. I'm working on a new mm-hmm. book story about living in the weather of the world. Mm-hmm. What and, a great um, title. <laughs> yeah, also a good title. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> I'm very proud of it, I, I'm, and I think it's a pretty good book. I've already got six stories and um, two long ones so that when I finish them, it might be the book. It might be 
that might be all. I mean, if I don't want to go over, you know. <laughs> and then there's you know, another one. Mm-hmm. But remind uh, me what. Well, I was thinking about your collected short stories, and um, I was just thinking about what it must be like to put together a book like that, and wondering if there was anything you noticed, you know, about your evolution or your interests or just anything that stood out to you uh, about yourself as a writer from seeing things that that were put together after all this time? Um, no, and you know what? The thing that's odd is I, you know, I left a couple of stories out that I now kind of wish I'd put in, you know? Mm-hmm. There's one called that I think has one of the best moments I ever wrote in it, and I don't know why I left it out. I guess maybe just, well, it, you know, that's how come we ended up with Wives and Lovers, because... These, if we were going to include the novellas, it was going to be a book that, you know, like, it's going to be like the Oxford English Dictionary. It'd be too big. So mm. we went. <laughs> just, you know, the the paperback, three short novels. But um, I don't, I never did, I, I mean, it's funny, I never really even reread a lot of them, I just sort of arranged them in the sense that, like, I was arranging any regular collection. I didn't, for instance, the mm-hmm. first story in there is called Nobody in Hollywood, and I just put it in there because there's laughs in it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, mm-hmm. and um, I don't know why Simpson Space doesn't do that one because it has a lot of laughs in it. And, uh, and it's funny, it's a funny story. And then, by the way, that's when I learned, that's how slow I learned, that, you know, setting it into motion is just simply doing exactly that. That if you write a line, any line, um, then that predicates the next line. Mm. you got to say something. So, you know, I tell students, say anything, anything at all. you got to follow it with something. I was mm-hmm. being chased with a gigantic pair of sweat socks. What's that? <laughs> That's great. Well, I I wanted to tell you we have run over our time a little bit, so if you have friends who have listened and got cut off, you can let them know that um, even though the live show discontinued, it did continue to record. So the recording that is on file, um, they can go back and listen to that and, and hear everything if they want. So, um it's been so wonderful talking with you, really. Um, it's been fun. And, yeah. Yeah. Um, as we close, could you sort of, I'm sure a lot of people are really curious about you now. I'm sure a lot of people that are listening are already fans, but the ones who, who didn't know of your work already probably want to learn more about it. Could you sort of direct them to your website or um, wherever you'd like them to go to be able to follow you and learn more about you? Um, I, there is a website that um, Lisa put together. It's called, it's just richardbowers.com and it should come up. Pretty sure that's it. And, um, okay. And you're on Facebook with wonderful quotes about writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Those are good. Well, wow, that's sweet. Yeah. I, uh, mm-hmm. 
I've kind of run out of things to say about it. Uh, <laughs> I think your quotes there and the things that you say actually probably sustain a lot of writers. So <laughs> I'm going to light a fire under you. You have to keep going. <laughs> got to figure something else to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's wonderful. It's really wonderful. Um, you know, the thing is you're so, it feels like you're so honest there. Um, you know, you just, without embarrassment or anything, you just talk about what's going on with you and your own writing, and that's always so instructive to other writers. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know because, mm -hmm. you know, i got to teach class tonight, and I'm going to go in and tell them, <laughs> you know, they're all, they're all wonderful. You know, we used to do this thing, I remember, but you'll love this. We still do it occasionally. Um, we come out after class, and we're all standing in the parking lot. And um, somebody will ask for it. Let's do the huddle. And so we all get in the huddle. And everybody, it's as if we're a football team, except very slowly we rise, come out of the huddle, saying, oh, God, but I do love being gifted with our oh, arms, <laughs> our oh, arms pointing funny. at the sky, you know. That's and beautiful. it makes people want to go home and work. It's fun. It's, yeah, you know. that's beautiful. <laughs> well, you are truly a great, great inspiration to so many people. You really are. And I hope you think of more things to say. <laughs> <laughs> I'll work on it. <laughs> Thank you well, so much for tonight. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Before we close, I'd like to let our listeners know that you can subscribe to our journal at www.teferritjournal.com. Our current issue includes haiku by Alfred Korn and Sanders Zuloff, a story by Julian Hoffman, winner of the AWP Award Series in Nonfiction, translations of Anna Akhmatova by Alex Segal, and more. While on the website, you may also want to order a copy of our first DeFerret Talk book, which includes interviews with Robert Pinsky, Ed Hirsch, Julia Cameron, and many other writers. Special thanks for this and all our shows to Tefera Talk producer R.J. Jeffries and associate producer Udo Hintz and, of course, our host, Melissa Studdard. I hope you will tune in again next month when Melissa and I interview Char Denure, author of four much-acclaimed poetry books and co-founder of the New England College MFA program in poetry. We look forward to having you join us. In the meantime, I and all the staff at Teferit wish you and the world a meaningful peace. May we all embody the concept of Teferit in our lives, a loving heart, wise compassion, and an expansive reconciliation of opposites.